HavanaDeprived.com is proud to present Top 8 Magic Podcast with Michael J. Flores and Brian David Marshall. Brought to your ears thanks to FaceToFaceGames.com. I gotta remember to send in my paperwork. Yeah, it's, like, would, it's like due in like a day or two. That would be among the dumbest things ever if you missed the pro tour because you didn't file your paperwork after you managed to go to multiple PPTQs, book a flight out of state for an RTQ, and actually manage to qualify. And then land being on Team Ultra Pro. And, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Congratulations on that, yeah. by the way. But that's like a, a number of dominoes that have been set up that if I just forget to send in my paperwork would be... Yeah. I mean, you could always just fly there, right? Like... <laughs> I mean, I can call up Helen and be like, hey, can you just take care of this for me? No, she no, can't. She you got to call up Tracy. Oh, I don't know Tracy. Tracy, she books all the travel for Wizards. No, no, the travel I don't I mean, I don't care as much about, right? It's, it's the paperwork to, like, to, oh. like, no, it's to register for the Pro Tour. Oh, you need to, you need to get that in. Yeah. I got, like, a, a couple of days. <laughs> they accept the email. <laughs> yeah. Email comes, like, within, like, one day, right? Like, two generally, days, maybe. Generally, generally. Depends hey. if you use AOL. Yeah. And Mike Flores. Hey. hey, what's up, guys? Are you, hey. like, bumming around before uh, Modern Masters Draft or something? We're, We're podcasting. podcasting before Modern Masters Draft. Oh, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 it's no worries. Right. That wouldn't be a podcast without someone interrupting. That's it's awesome. Point. You guys just record in the park? Yeah. Anywhere. We usually record up on Waverly and Gay, but, like, because uh, that's, like, where, like, you know. So we get our coffee. The best-looking talent is, also. <laughs> it's, like, five with Flores. Is that what you guys are doing? Or? No. Oh, is that? I don't know. The top, top eight, eight magic. magic. Top, okay, yeah, yeah. Not old school or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> I'm keen. Uh, I just finished like my second semester at NYU. It's my friend Yanji. So, hey, nice to see you. Up? Good luck. Thanks. I'll Thanks. see you. I'll see you at uh, Uncommons later. I, I don't know. I think I'm gonna go home. Yeah. Oh, okay. Prize support on that is like shoddy, but it's fun. But you okay. guys play Modern Masters. You might open a goif. <laughs> we did one um, last night, actually. Um, it was fun. He three would and I one two. <laughs> Not that good, obviously. All right, all right. <laughs> Have a good night, guys. It's just that's just how it is. Yeah. That was kind of cool. Um, uh, Keen borrowed to me some uh, Colagons commands in the in the uh, uh, PPTQ I played a few oh, okay. weeks ago, where I went one and two with a buy. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about how good I did in that one. Yeah, I was kind of so I went to my normal like store today to go play Modern Masters yeah. release draft. What's your normal store? Well, I usually go to Montessi because. On Fridays, like at three o'clock, they just start running drafts, and every eight people that fill up, they fire off a draft. So it's awesome, right? But for this, they were like, they were like, "Sorry, we're sold out for all our drafts today." Like all their drafts were filled. Where is there a constructed Friday Night Magic? Uncommons does a constructed Friday Night Magic, and so does Modesty. They do both. Friday? Oh wow! Maybe we should start doing that. Or yeah, Montessi does uh, at like I think seven o'clock or six thirty. They do a standard tournament, but then they just run like six or seven drafts over yeah. the course of the day as well. I'm so scheduled, though. I don't know if my wife would tolerate me just like being not <laughs> home on Fridays in order to play. Pl- magic. Playing in non uh, non invitation bearing events. I don't know how that would work. Actually, she was like, why don't you just do that thing where you just play regular like other people and then not play these like crazy day-long events and go traveling? Because certainly, like, there's millions of Magic players. They don't all do that, right? Sure. I was like, no, most of them just, like, play for fun. She's like, why don't you do that? <laughs> I was just like, we'll discuss this. We've never discussed it. <laughs> and, I mean, I've always gotten the impression that you, you don't necessarily find that to be fun. 
like playing like just a tournament without something on the line, right? Uh, I mean, we we played that LG, LGS tournament before the Invitational last year. That was fun. But I that, won that one. But you were you were trying to prove something. I wanted right? like you had a specific like agenda. You're like I want to prove that my deck is good. Yeah, my deck was good. I was happy. Uh, yeah, I guess I only play in tournaments that have invitations or or, or, or play with a purpose like as part of that sort of plan yeah I don't know like I play a ton anyway myself so like it's not that I don't have engagement of playing right? right so I feel like when I play I want all of my play to be moving towards something and if um like, I, I think of, like, most of the playing that I do on Moto as being preparations for the next big event I'm going to play in. Or at least, like, preparations for an article or something, right? Like, so just, like, on an ongoing content creation basis, you need to have things that are interesting to talk about. And your experiences in playing, let's say, online could could be uh, one such vector. But, like, that's kind of what I do for for the writing, for the community. But what I do for myself is really, like, preparation for live events. Like, I've never played, for example, in a Moto PCQ. I'm sure if I played in a Moto PCQ, I would think of that as a serious endeavor. But for the most part, I think of, like, the small tournaments I play, like 1v1Qs or whatever that I play in Moto as um, barometers for what I should be thinking about for when I play in, like, you know, a PPCQ, an RPCQ, a Grand Prix... God forbid a pro tour, an invitational, whatever it is. I mean, that's, yeah, that's how I think about it. Um, which I guess, like, I went to Friday Night Magic with Jack Stanton when we were in Utah, actually, but I didn't play. Right. I just stood around and watched people, and I was just like, I could beat that. I could beat that. I could beat that. Uh, talk, talk to me for, so you said you mentioned earlier Team Ultra Pro. Mm-hmm. So, announcement went out earlier this week that yeah. Team Ultra Pro had picked up you, Patrick Chapin, and Rich Holmes. Yeah. So, what happened? Um... That's what happened. I mean, the, uh, you know, Pat, Patrick and I wanted to work together, and uh, I think this was just the the best option all around. Like, I, I mean, we've worked well together, uh, and I mean, and you forget even about the last six months or whatever. Patrick has wanted to work with me for a pro tour for basically ten years or something, where you know our ships just never. We're never you, you in the night. You guys never together. worked together on a not in a single pro tour. So like, when I, for some reason I thought you would have been involved with the Snap Cradle deck for like Secaucus. No, we were not on the same team. Oh. We were on enemy teams. I see. As far as you can be enemies with someone who's like one of your best friends. <laughs> no, he was on quite, quite within your range. He was on <laughs> Team CMU, and I was on Cabal Rogue. Okay. At the time, yeah. So. So, uh, you, yeah. so you're reunited with Cabal Rogue. I guess we are. Teammate Adrian Sullivan. Yeah. So like. Uh, the people, a lot of the people on Team Ultra Pro, for example, Brian Cole and Adrian Sullivan are just my old teammates from 15 years ago, right? So, um, you actually, you actually played with BK. Yeah, we played on, on, on a team pro, pro tour. Tours yeah, yeah, multiple. He's a really good friend of mine. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I don't know a lot of like the young Madison guys, right? Great. So I don't know Justin Cohen. I never met him in real life. You know, uh, I never worked with Sam really. Yeah. You know? So, uh, like. I think Sam was just, like, getting into being good enough to play in the Pro Tour around the time when I, I played in my last Pro Tour. So, you know, for me, um, I, obviously not my last Pro Tour is in my final Pro Tour, the last Pro Tour I played in. Right. Now, I was thinking about, you know, how my star has moved over the years, and I was actually playing my best Magic ever around that time, where I, you know, I individually went, like, whatever, 11-3 and three in that Pro Tour. Mark Herberholt says... If I hear one more time that if it were an individual pro tour, you would have made top eight, I will kill you. But I would have, you know. <laughs> um, 
and then like I won states and stuff. And then I had my second kid, and I just yeah, I just wasn't able to commit all the weekends that you have to be able to commit to get and stay on the pro tour anymore. Like I think I think I have made one pro tour top eight since then. That entire time, I mean, sorry, pro PTQ top eight, sorry, not pro tour top eight. But that's like way less unimpressive when you consider the fact that I played maybe total of 10 PTQs sure. in the last 10 years or something, 8 years or something. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was super not anticipating being back on the Pro Tour this year. Uh, I guess I put myself in good situations to let that happen, and it did. And anyway, so Patrick and I wanted to work together forever. And, uh, you know, I certainly don't think that he's, you know, he says he's still got Pantheon blood in his veins, right? But you know, you know, I'm very, I'm very happy that that um, you know we're gonna be able to work together on this one, and I'm very happy that the guys on Team Ultra Pro thought enough of me to, to let me on. It's a really, really high bar for this team. Yeah, the, the team has done phenomenally well, right? Like it's just I've got top eight players po- in the last two Pro Tours. Yeah, yeah, post post the top eight, the last two Pro Tours, multiple top sixteen finishes at each Pro Tour. So just just really, really uh, robust results. Okay, serious serious question. I mean, this is. It is, it, on one hand, the most cliched of questions, yeah. but, I, but I really want to, like, what would it mean for you after all this time playing Magic and doing that, like, if you could actually top eight a Pro Tour? Top eight a Pro Tour? Yeah, top eight could, this Pro you Tour? You could top eight this Pro Tour. Like, what would that what would that represent to you? What would that mean for you? Um, if I top eighted this Pro Tour, I'd be disappointed. <laughs> There's only, like, one or two more, right? Wins that were... <laughs> take it all um i would be like happy sad you know yeah uh i'd be like super happy you know still be on the pro tour um you know etc and then sad that i'm like oh man i could have gotten the next two that would have been better (laughs) um but you know honestly i just the honest to god truth is i try not to have emotional investment with regards to the outcomes that i that i have on things so yeah, I would be just stone-faced lying if I said that if I had made the final table, you know, when I was playing on Sunday, that I wouldn't be emotionally elated, right? right. I'd be like, oh, the greatest thing ever, right? But, you know, uh, you know, that would mean a lot to me. You know, I think that sometimes people think it's like, you think it would be a validation of all I've been doing? No. All I've been doing all this time is not not connected to my individual performance in tournaments at all. I gave that up a long time ago. Like, I, I gave up an interest in that a long time ago. If I... If I had tied my ability to be a productive member of this community to my high-level tournament results, I would have ceased being effective at communicating anything useful 10 years ago or something. Uh, And in that time, I've won some decent-sized tournaments, designed a deck that won a Pro Tour, etc. I'd like to think that that I'm still producing uh, good content, in some cases, some of the best content still that, that, that I've ever produced. So I, from my perspective, there's no relationship whatsoever between what I've been doing and my continued involvement in Magic and my individual tournament results. W- there are just two different things. I, was, I wasn't suggesting that there was. Oh, I'm sure that if I top eight a Pro Tour, that would be the, that would be the narrative. I am sure of that, right? I, so just, I, I just meant, like, like, watching Adrian top eight yeah. at the last Pro Tour. You know, I mean, Adrian's someone who... In, in some ways, there's a lot of parallels in your careers. Yeah. Um, we were took, roommates. We yeah, had similar same. jobs 15 years Eskimo ago. Eskimo brothers. <laughs> Probably. I don't know what that means. Uh, well, <laughs> well, Urban Dictionary. Is that something later. that I have to Urban Dictionary from, like, a 
a Google incognito window <laughs> on a Probably. on a public computer that will never get back to me. Yeah. So okay. Uh, it just means you've tread the same ground. Hmm. So um, you know, I I I'd like I think that a lot of my especially early opinions of magic were deeply influenced by Adrian. Um, you know. He was yeah, with, but, but like, I was saying, but, he, but Adrian, Adrian was really emotional. I mean, surprisingly emotional, I think, when he made the top eight. I doubt that I would be that emotional publicly. I don't know. I might be wrong. Um, I, this is why I think so. When I won my first PTQ, you were there. I was like a firecracker. I was like, yeah, I knew I was one of the best players in the world. Like, I mean, I literally was just like, I always knew I was this good. Like, <laughs> then I was like jumping around. I'm going to Dallas. I was like so happy. And then like, I mean, you, I just couldn't contain myself. But when my second PTQ, a, a, you know, a lot similar, right? I won this last one in Utah. I was happy. Don't get me wrong. I was very satisfied with the outcome. Everyone around me seemed to be happier than I was. Like, you were like, I'm so happy for Mike on Twitter, you know? And I was like, I was happy. I was proud of myself. But, like, in terms of the emotion being poured out, I really felt like the people around me were were more emotional than I was. I was just kind of like, you know, I made a plan. I tried to execute on the plan. You know, I... Hannibal from A-Team, like, this stuff is coming together pretty well for me. You know, when I found out I was going to get paired against Esper in the top eight and I had the play, I was actually more worried than I was happy. And I was just like, there's almost no way that I can lose unless I catastrophically punt. Please, please, please don't catastrophically punt. That's, that's, like, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I, this is like an almost unlosable matchup. I could have mulliganed to five and still crushed him, you know? That, that's the... the the spot I was in emotionally. I mean, if right now I'm, I'm like, wow, this is like, it's a pretty good team I got on, you know? I People who seem to be putting their faith behind me, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to collaborate in this way. I'm happy to have the opportunity to play in the Pro Tour, you know, I'm happy to have the, very grateful to have like the means to be able to, you know, like a lot of people, they can place in a tournament or having a high enough rating or enough Planeswalker points or whatever, whatever criteria gets on the Pro Tour and they couldn't pick up and fly to Canada and play for a weekend, right? Sure. Like, they just don't have the means. I'm sure there are so many people out there who are playing in dozens or hundreds of small towns around the world who are all the best player in the world, and nobody's ever going to find out, right? And that's the... That's, like, the honest truth of it. I mean, I've been do you, do you think super that, lucky about do you th- this. Do you think that? I mean, I, I, I always feel like the players who... who have that drive to be the best. I mean, part of becoming the best is is really about pushing yourself and constantly, like, finding the people that are in your sort of immediate sphere of play influence and surpassing them and learning from the best and surpassing them and then moving up to the next tier. I I feel like like to be, like, among the best in the world, I I think that requires a certain amount of upward mobility. All right, so there are not hundreds of people in hundreds of small towns that are all the best player in the world, right? What I meant to say is... When I was in Philadelphia, I lived in Philadelphia for four years. I was more than capable of winning a Pro Tour qualifier when I was in Philadelphia, as I won multiple. Okay? I had a play group that had other players who were approximately good enough to win Pro Tour qualifiers, like Al Tran, right? And then there was everybody else. So Al was so much better than girl at girls than I was when <laughs> we were, like, 19. The dude would just, like, not play for two years because he had girls to deal with, right? And I just had... Mana to mana bases <laughs> to fix, right? It was a, it was a different scenario for me, and um, 
I mean, I guess I chose that scenario, right? Sure. I chose magic over other opportunities that I had at that age. But I just didn't have players that were good enough in my area that were that were going to push me. The, the problem in that scenario was I was just literally miles better than my entire play group. So it kind of didn't matter what I did. I would just win consistently over and over and over again. Um, you know, do, do you remember the... The, was it the Ballad of Flores with Tuna wrote that thing where I played in a local tournament and then I destroyed my rating by going OX or something it's like a do you remember Sounds this vaguely yeah. he wrote this like uh, this poem because I it was just like I was just considered to be the best and the thing was I was that was a small community it's different even though you're talking about playing in a metropolitan area that was only you know an hour or two away from from New York City don't have the challenges and the you know the, the technological capabilities etc to to level up somebody who's at a certain level I mean think about it right now if, if you were gonna play in the Philadelphia area today you're talking about a community that includes Jamie Park who has a prototype eight in the last 12 months Landy Ho who apparently can win a PPPTQ in his sleep because he's played <laughs> in like he's played in three one two of them and top eight of the other one okay and Chris Pakula, who, um, you know, three three lifetime Pro Tour top eights yep. or something. And Invitational s- winner. Invitational winner. And still a deadly player at tournament level, right? Like, the guy has, like, five Star City top eights or something, right? So that's their community in Philadelphia right now. When I lived in Philadelphia, I was really the best player. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's a problem because I wasn't that good, you know? If I had lived in New York instead, who would have my peer group have been? Steve O'Mahony Schwartz when he still cared. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that Steve doesn't care, but he doesn't even well, show up for the Pro Tours he's he qualified yeah, yeah, yeah. for. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Okay. Like Dan O'Mahony Schwartz, Zvi Moshewitz, John Finkel. This is only an hour and a half away from here, right? But we just, I just, I didn't have a car. We weren't connected in the way that we are right now. If we had Moto, I mean, I played with John at the first Pro Tour I was qualified for. He destroyed me, by the way, all yeah. over the place. I, yeah, just, yeah. I, I, I was at this point. I'm like, I only brought like these 140 cards. I can't even make a deck that can win. <laughs> this Finkel kid just destroyed me, no matter what I do. That was my mindset going into my first day of my pro tour. Flores fact: <laughs> If you're not used to playing with John Finkel, don't just play with John Finkel a bunch the day before your first pro tour. <laughs> you're not going to do no, any it's favors. Like swinging to your a weighted brain. bat. It was. It's like swinging a weighted bat. If Everything, you, everything's easy after that. If you play with John Finkel for months and months before your pro tour, everyone you play against after that is easy. Who's the first player you played on the pro tour? Do you remember the person's name? No. My, but, my first, my first pro tour opponent. Yeah. Pierre Kroger. Pierre Kroger. Yeah. Two-time pro tour top eight competitor. Yeah. Pierre Kroger. Yeah. I beat him. I didn't beat anyone else that day, but I beat him. My second round opponent was Aaron Murnaka, <laughs> who I hung out with three weeks ago in, in Utah. It was my first win on the Pro Tour, was Aaron Murnaka. Uh, I played against some good players that day. I played against Matt Place, multiple Pro Tour top eight competitor. Um, but anyway, you know, what would it mean to me? Of course, I would be... Of course, I'd be happy. You know, hopefully, of the things we can choose to do, right? You can't choose whether to breathe or not, okay? I... Unless you smoke. <coughs> Sorry. Just... Unless you smoke, you yeah. can you know, really choose to decrease the value of your breaths. But you know, we can't choose whether or not we want to breathe. You know, We need a certain level of sustenance and human connection and stuff like that. Those are your basic necessities for human experience. But of the things that we can choose to do in our leisure time, you know, whether that's reading books or playing video games or creating art, whatever you want to do, cooking, you like to cook, right? Which TV shows you want to watch? Or you have a hobby like 
I and you and I would guess most of the people listening to this podcast right now have, which many of us have an intense, intense passion for. Of the things in that category that you can choose to do or not, I would hope that you choose to do the things that make you happier or better, at least, than other opportunities. And if you ask me, hey, Mike, here's this thing that you've spent more time doing than your entire career put together. You spent more time doing this than the total, sum total number of hours that you spent with your wife or either of your children. <laughs> this is a true story. Sure. I've been playing Magic for 20 years, right? right? Spent way more time on the Magic tables than I have with Bella, okay? Would making a Pro Tour Top 8, which is more or less the pinnacle of this thing, make you happier? Yes, of course it would, right? But I think it's also interesting that your initial reaction was, well, I'd be sad that I didn't win the semifinals. I would. I would, though. <laughs> you know, top four, a little less sad. Maybe sadder. I don't Maybe. know. No, I mean, at that point, you're just... I'll, I'll give you an example, right? I'm spoiled in the sense that the first top eight I ever made, Pro Tour Qualifier Top 8, I won, okay? So there's no... I have no... I have no context for not winning when you when you sure. do at the beginning. Whereas that's not true for most people. That's not true for more than three quarters of the people who make a pro tour qualifier top eight, right? Right. So every experience I ever had in successive magic after that was compared to not making the pro tour qualifier top eight, but winning the pro tour qualifier or coming in second to Eric Eric Lauer in a two slaughter, right? Yeah. It's just we you know we did whatever arcane thing yeah, that, yeah, that we right. split in. So I, I qualified in the four slaughter. Good man. Doesn't matter. It, no, I'm just saying, right, that's the context that we have. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if I had made a top eight and then not won, probably that as that is my formative hear, example, wait, wait, you, everything you, after would have been different. Do you hear that sound? There's a lot of sounds from that's the, the that No, that's the sound of, like, the Magic Community gnashing their teeth at the concept of four-slot pro-door qualifiers. <laughs> I remember one where... Uh, Eric Lauer is uh, top seed in a four-slot qualifier. Loses in the round of eight. Uh, But Tony Sai has almost also made top eight, and he's qualified on rating. So Eric got the pass down in fifth. Oh, God. That was in Jersey, I think. Okay. Uh, Jeff Denae was the tournament organizer. Uh, Sherry Hill. Both ran that. Oh, you ran that too? I ran that, yeah. Jeff and I ran that. We... It's like 97 or 98. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff, Jeff Denae uh, charged all his food to my hotel room. Yeah. I, Me and Schuler left and got him food, so I don't know why he would do that. He just did. And then uh, I broke into his room and ordered uh, all the gay porn. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ordered it all. Just ordered him like 24-hour blocks of pornography. Gay pornography. Yeah, gay pornography. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right, here's a trivia question. Yeah. Let's say you walk into your room and gay porno is playing, right? Because somebody ordered it, right? Yeah. You're now on the hook to pay for this. Do you watch it or change the channel? I guess it depends on my mood. <laughs> right? I think I at least give it a shot. You know? <laughs> like, well, I got to pay for this anyway. <laughs> mm, might not be for me, but, you know... You'll never know if you don't give it a yeah, try. Yeah, I think I would give it a go. <laughs> I'm not passing judgment on anybody that that's their thing. I would. I think I would give it a go. Yeah. Now, would I go on you know, a website and be like, ooh, what query will I put into the search bar? Probably not. I guess it all depends on whether or not you've got an incognito window or not. <laughs> I always use an incognito <laughs> window. I have a wife and two children. Um, so, yeah, I don't think I would do that search. But yeah. if I was already on the hook... Sure. Give it a go. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'd be super happy. Right. My goal actually is not to make top eight. My goal is to play well enough that I can continue to be on the pro tour. Uh, top twenty-five or whatever, whatever, whatever they call it. It's not top twenty-five the, now yet. Whatever it's the like thing a, is, it's a, it's a fixed result. But I'd rather, I'd rather just be happy with my play at the table. Sure. Like you know, at Grand Prix New Jersey, I guess it's last year, and I was in November. I was extraordinarily happy with my play. I won every single game that I could win. Um, you know, all the games that I lost, I was in unwinnable matchups. And my it's legacy, so it's completely different context, right? So I'm playing red deck. My opponent's playing reanimator, and he knows I'm playing red deck. And he mulligans, mulligans, smiles, and goes first turn in tomb. Well, I don't have a first turn <laughs> kill, so I'm pretty sure that's going to be an Iona on the second turn, yeah. right? That's the only reason that he would play this way. Can't really win those games, right? So I remember I was just like X and two. P. Sully's like, a lot of pressure on this round, Mike. Go get I'm like, you know what, P. Sully? Played pretty perfectly all day. Not worried. Didn't get a third game. <laughs> you know? So then I played against the, uh, what do you call it? The energy field, uh, energy field and uh, uh, rest in peace deck. It's like it, uh, enlightened tutor for energy field. Yeah. yeah. Good luck beating that deck with no wastelands in your deck. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be done. So, yeah, no, those are my losses. I, I didn't... I really, like... So, anyway, I have the recent experience of being able to, you know, play and win all the games that I can and then still not win, you know? So, I you, think... You'd, you'd, like to come out of, you'd like to come out of that weekend and say, I chose the right deck. I made, I executed the correct plays. I think that I chose the right deck and executed the right plays, and I just wasn't lucky. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, yeah. you, you want to basically say, come out of it and go, I controlled the things I could control yeah. and executed the things I could execute. And then if it comes together, it comes together. I just didn't play against the Treasure Cruise Burn deck, whatever. Like, Which is like, this is the slam dunk deck you should be playing if you're playing that format, right? Um, although I guess the, the finals was BBD playing, like, that weird Stoneforge deck and... Uh, and uh, Tom Ross playing Infect, but right. I think I could have beaten. I, I was just really didn't play against the decks that you were expecting to play sure. against, and you know it's a small end even if you're playing a nine round tournament. It's it's not, especially given the size of that tournament with thousands of players. Right. So, um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'd be happy. I'm happy just to be able to go. I don't want I don't want to have my emotional connection and my emotional connection to Magic be subject to my you know performance. If you if you get mana screwed like ten times over the course of the day, there's just not going to be a good outcome for you. Sure. And so well, you can, can't. You, you can can't question connect. your mulligan decisions. Yeah. You can. Uh, so I know. I know you did uh, recently did a podcast with Patrick about Collected Company. Yeah. Uh, we talked about Collected Company last week with with Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, collective Company. Collective. Yes. Collective, collective Company. Card um, was. Kind of a big deal this weekend. I was just at the Magic Online Championship. Card yeah. is quite legitimate. Yeah. Uh, did you, Did you see the the Elves deck that Ole Rade and Magnus Lanto played it, in Modern? I did not. Oh my god, it's sweet. Four collected company, four quarter callings. Yeah, I, I like the sound of it. And it's just like the basic Elves engine, you know. Crater Hook Behemoth win. No, no, no. Uh, Azuri Renegade Leader win. Um. So do you have to make a massive amount of mana? To put well, that way? generally you need to make about five extra mana. Yeah. To pump. Oh, and just overrun. To overrun. Once? You just overrun. Yeah. But sometimes you overrun twice. But you know. Is there like Eternal Witness or anything in that deck? Eternal Witness. Yeah. Is there Primal Command? No. No. 
No, the deck is, is really streamlined. You got to be quick, though. Like, it, it is. It's very quick. So, I mean, that was he, he won 2-0 over Podless Pod in the finals. I, I feel like Podless Pod should have the advantage there. It should. I think I think the Podless Pod deck probably made uh, at least one player that mm-hmm. could have given him an extra, another game of play. But, uh, but no, the, the Elves deck, the Elves deck is kind of sweet. But Collected Company is just awesome. Quarter Calling, obviously, also. The, the best play all weekend we saw is uh, Ole Rade's playing that deck against... Fake Reforged champion Antonio Del Moraleon, who won with Splinter Twin in Modern, and he's playing Splinter Twin at, in Modern Bob. here, obviously. And uh, and Ole is just thinking not quite gone off. He's just got a bunch of guys, but he's got a sideboarded small skite out, <laughs> and you know, pretty difficult for the Splinter Twin players. Got Pestermite out, you but, know, you but know. he's just like, all right, I got to kill that. So he taps all his mana, and I'm like, oh, does he have Kiki Jiki here? Nope. It's Karanos, God of Storms. Yeah. So he's like, Karanos, God of Storms, draws a turn, draws a lightning bolt, does does three with Karanos to the spell skite. And then lightning bolts lightning it? Lightning bolts it. Only sort of, like, only got a little bit of operating mana. He's got tapped out for something on his turn. He's like, tap four creatures or tap three creatures and quarter calling for one. The burnt and forge tender. Yeah. <laughs> the one forge tender. It was pretty and sweet. And then he counters the lightning bolt. And he counters the lightning bolt, yeah. It was pretty sweet. I like it. He won that match. But, uh, but yeah, Collective Company seems just, you know, I mean, I think you compared it to Bloodbraid Elf. Yeah. I mean, not quite, right? Because you could still counter it and counter both, you know. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, but, but, but very comparable feel, right? Like yeah, just, I mean, you get like a you, thing that's less than four. Yeah, and it's, and it's an instant, so you get to sort of pick your spots where you're not going to get countered on it. Yeah. Or you could just like back to back it, right? You could have two, you could do one, yeah. it gets countered on tap two, another one, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, the sweet thing about Bloodbraid is you could just cast it and get a spell. Yeah. But a lot of the time, oftentimes the spell would be like a noble hierarchy. Right, right. Because right? it was super random. Like, this card gives you a lot of selection. Yeah. It's pretty comparable to like Dig Through Time, right? So Dig Through Time doesn't look at that many more cards in collection. No, no, no. It's only one more card. So, uh, and you know, what's the mode cost on a Dig Through Time? Five? What are people really paying? It's not two. Uh, yeah, I, w- I would say four, probably. All right, it's four. It's Classic Company pays the mana for yeah, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is like a... It's, I think it's a way better card than people think, and people already realize it's a good card. Yeah, no, I... I it was one of those things where watching it in play at the Magic Online Championships, I was kind of like, oh, this card's going to be around for a while. We're going to see a lot of this yeah. card. I like them. I like them they have cards that actually are worth, you know, people wanting to play with them. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's like one of those cards, because I think the first time you look at the card... Your instinct is, what can I do to break this? Yeah. Right? How do I... What's my combo? How am I going to kill someone with it? And instead, it's just kind of like, what am I going to do that's just a really good value? What if this is pretty good? What if this card's just good? What if this card just advances my board? I mean, like, what if you just got, like, a kitchen face? Right. Well, that's... And then, and what's funny, the Podless Pod deck yeah. was playing also playing Court of Calling and so did, Collected Company. But he did not play... I would guess he did not play Spike Feeder. He played Kitchen Finks. He played Kitchen Finks, uh, Malira, and Anafenza, uh, the, the the new one, the new Anafenza that uh, puts that, that that bolsters. Yeah. So you get to. Well, you need Viserys here. And and Viserys, here, yeah, obviously. So then you just gain a bunch of life. You gain a bunch of. He also had Murder Strike Cap. Oh, so you can kill somebody. So you can. <laughs> Yes. Killing somebody's good. Yeah. Uh, I like the one if you just if the only thing you court for is uh, Archangel of Thune, 
Probably sure. Spike Feeder. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. That's like a two-card combo. The the, the Kitchen Finks combo is at least three cards. Yeah, it's, it seemed a little more... Like a couple more hoops to jump through watching it play out. The, the other reason I like the Archangel of Thune combo is you kill them, right? You just like... Not only do you have the opportunity to gain infinite life, but you can kill them. Like, if you've got three nine million, nine million guys, probably going to kill them, right. right? If you gain nine million life, you're probably going to win, but you might not. Right. You can still get decked. There are still... all kinds of stuff that can happen yeah, to yeah. you. Like, somebody could get, like, an Eldrazi, obliterator you, and then just, like, shuffle their other Eldrazi until you, you know. Just, uh, like, the entire game is I obliterator you every turn, so you have no permanence, okay? And then I just drop to seven, drop to eight, discard my Eldrazi every 56 turns. Can I, can I demonstrate that as a loop? No, you, you don't have to, because <laughs> the opponent will eventually deck, because he's been obliterated, so he's going to run out of permanence. Sure. Right. right, so if I get you in an obliterator situation, right, and I say I'm attacking with Kozilek every turn. Right. Oh, I don't know. Let's say I'm attacking with Ulamog every turn. Sure. Okay? Ulamog. Oh, that's true. I'm just going to die to the Ulamog attack. No, you're not. I mean, not if you have 9 million life. Oh, sure. Right? Yes. But, like, you have no perms because Ulamog. Okay. Right. <laughs> like, Ulamog's going to make us have no perm. Eventually, right? Right. So, like, every 30 turns or whatever, I just discard my other Ulamog. But, but 30 turns is... You will run out of cards. I understand I will run out of cards. You might run out of time. I mean, I will tell the judge, can you watch this (laughs) jerk off so he doesn't doesn't do this? Now now you're all about the fair play from the judges. I see. I've always been about the fair play from the judges. The only question we have... Well, actually, it's not even a question. You guys look at things that are well within the fair play zone... (laughs) That Sheldon Mennery and I agree are in the fair place. And you're like, I don't think you should do that. <laughs> Why? Because I don't know what the card's because name I, is. And it's in Korean. Apparently because I'm blue and Marshall's white. Is that what the, yeah. the conclusion was on Twitter? And I, what did I say? I was just like, well, a cynical man could say that that's self, <laughs> enlightened self-interest on Marshall's part. My objective is that the coverage is best for new players. Great someone who makes their livelihood from the coverage. <laughs> He's good at it. Don't get me wrong. That is a noble-ish thing to say. Noble-ish. If, uh, you know, if, uh, I'm just thinking of, like, you know, if somebody else, if, uh, I, I don't know, if John Finkel said that, I would be like, oh, wow, there's no self-interest in this statement, right? Right. If the coverage team members all say that, I'm like, well, this is, you know, it's sure. very different. I get it. You still be a good person. That's not the question. Speaking of good people, let's, let's, let's talk about Mad Men. Oh, wow. Spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. All right, spoilers. so wait. So, so. If, you're, if, you're, if, you, if you've not watched Mad Men or, or Game the of season Thrones. finale of Mad Men... Uh, Just I, tune out I don't now. Think, I don't think I'm emotionally up to a Game of Thrones discussion. <laughs> Sorry. I can monologue to the point that you're just infuriated and you'll, you'll get into it. Okay. I can, I can I don't see want to, I don't want to talk about Game of Thrones. Let's talk about... We can talk about Mad Men. Okay, so let me let me see if I can get... But your, spoilers. Spo- spoilers. If you're not interested in spoilers, just tune out. I have, I'm sure there's nothing interesting that has to do with, with magic for the rest of this podcast. I, have, I haven't watched the Flash uh, season finale. Neither have I. Then again, I haven't watched any Flash episodes of The Brave and the Bold. Oh, really? I'm going to binge the whole season when it's, it's really on. good. Yeah, I know. If it's better than Arrow, it's got to be really... Yeah. I'm a little afraid of uh, Legends of Tomorrow. It does not look like a great premise to me. But you understand, I'm, I'm sold. 
Because I love Cold's line. And then, wait, first of all, Rip Hunter. Okay, no, no, let's be clear about this alleged Rip Hunter. Rip Hunter, who is like Doctor Who companion Rip Hunter, <laughs> wearing David Tennant's coat, comes onto the screen. Do you know what both of my kids said when that happened? It's Constantine! <laughs> both of them said that. I'm like, well, kids, no, that's not Constantine. That's Rip Hunter. They're like, who? Who? Yeah. Like, well, he's like a Flash Gordon-esque sci-fi hero. And they're like, why does he look and act exactly like Constantine? I have no good answer for that. Because they're, they're both British. They're, is Rip Hunter even British? No. He's but like Flash Gordon, right? Like yeah, yeah, He's yeah. like from the future. Uh, he's a time traveler. But he's not Constantine. They're no, he's not Constantine, Constantine at all. He right, used so, to wear like a like a like a test pilot's outfit. <laughs> like he used to dress like pre thing Ben Grimm. Yeah, I think of him like looking like um, a- Adam Strange. Sure, he's from the same era of comics as Adam Strange. Yeah, that's what I think of him as. And then they're like, he, he dressed in more normal clothes than Adam Strange. Adam Strange always had like that white suit, more space suity. Well, anyway, I love that line that Cold has, and he's just like. I can't imagine any future where I'm a hero. I was like, heroes? None of you are heroes. You will be legends. I look. I had tears in my eyes when that line was delivered. Yeah. And I don't even think the show is going to be any good. <laughs> I mean, I think that Brandon Ruth's character, of the Adam, is such a goober. Yeah, I don't. I He's do like not, a freaking peanut. I do I not. I do not. I do not enjoy what they've done with him. I like so Firestorm. Yeah. has been on this season of Flash. In real life, he's uh, he's Arrow's brother, right? He's a cast-off of the CW uh, Tomorrow People from last uh, season. I think he's a cousin. I think they're brothers. I think cousins. All right, fine. But Kissing cousins? Maybe. Hey, I don't know. You have to go into your hotel room, turn on the TV. That's what I was going to say. But... But so, but I thought they handled that whole. I really enjoyed the way they did the whole storyline of the Flash with Firestorm. Wait, so it's Alias his dad when he's in human form, and then well, he's he's, he's Professor Stein. Yeah. But no, on the show, is he not? Is he not both of them? He's just Professor Stein. He's Professor Stein in human form, but then in human form, and then Ronnie there was Raymond. Ronnie, yeah. Ronnie Raymond right, was uh, worked at Star Labs. He. Uh, got evaporated in the in the big incident. And uh, so he and he and Doc Sign have sort of merged, which is which is how the original Firestorm comic worked. I thought that they were in two bodies when they were not. They were Firestorm. two separate bodies, but then they they, they merged. And so Professor, St- I think Professor Stein held the consciousness. His consciousness was present when they were Firestorm. I don't remember. I never liked Firestorm that much. His powers are really overpowered and ambiguous, right? Sure. Like, he has control over all elements, but not organic things, right? Is that like it? I guess so. So, like, he could turn an entire room into arsenic, but not Wait, burn... Firestorm has he... No, you think of a metamorpho or... No, metamorpho makes himself into different <laughs> things. Firestorm controls... Oh, Firestorm and metamorpho would be a good fight. <laughs> metamorpho would get his butt kicked. Are you kidding? Um, well, no. Maybe is metamorpho organic? Maybe I don't know. Maybe Firestorm. Maybe Firestorm would be covered in this case. What about White Canary slash Electra lives again? Well, White Canary is actually a character from Birds of Prey. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's a in the one year later storyline. I don't remember is what contrived reason they had, but uh, but uh, answer the Lazarus pit. <laughs> Black Canary and Lady Shiva had to change places. Okay. So, like, Lady Shiva had to be a hero, and 
Black Canary had to be an assassin. So like, oh wait, maybe they called her Jade Canary. I think that she, that I think that there's something right. Yeah. I can't look it up. No, no. no. So well, maybe if Marshall was here, he could look it up. He for could us. look it up for us, but I don't know if he would know. It was like in, during the Gail Simone Birds of Prey, which is excellent, by the way. Yeah. But I think that their White okay. Canary is a name for that. But Sarah, Sarah Lance isn't even a character in the right in the comic books, um, let alone Laurel Lance. Yeah. So, so here, here's Dinah Lance was yeah, her name, right? Dinah Laurel Lance, yeah. right? So, um, so Felicity Smoke is actually a character in the comic book. She's somebody's mom, though. Is it Vibes' mom? <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, certainly she's. Not... I was shocked to find out that Cisco was Vibe. Yes, yeah, Cisco's Vibe, and the other one is Killer Frost. So yeah, yeah, get can't... ready for the girl to be a bad guy yeah, at some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, she's great too. Uh, and then I was really, I was really excited about Katana. Oh yeah, yeah. I was so. sad when she didn't stick around, though. Oh, did I, I? I might need to watch the last episode yes, of that still. No, 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 she's just like I'm not going to stick around on your team. Oh, okay. I'm going to go back into a right, life right. of oh, okay. solitude. Sure. Because that makes so much so sense. I could do Pitch Perfect three. Is she in Pitch Perfect? She's in Pitch Perfect. I didn't know that. Yeah, do you, do you remember? Do you see the first Pitch Perfect? I did. I didn't see so the second. Do one. you remember? So do you remember the girl in Pitch Perfect, the the Asian girl who whispers things like, "I like to set things on fire to watch so I can feel something." No, I, I guess she's on the main. She's one of the main characters. I'll, in the I'll movie. watch. I don't. Anyway, that's yeah. That's Katana. I'm sorry that I don't have an exhaustive knowledge of all things, including Pitch Perfect. All right. But anyway, that's Katana. All right. So. So anyway, Mad Men. Mad Men. So your reading of it was that, so you had no initial connection that Don goes back and founds the most celebrated TV commercial of all time. So my 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 read from that. Your original read. My so. original read from that was that uh, that Don basically retired Don Draper completely embraced Dick Whitman and decided he was going to start his life anew and whatever that whatever that was I mean honestly my initial read was just that the coke my, my very initial read was even that the coke commercial was just like, hey, we're just going to show you some relic from the 70s. Really? Yeah, like, I didn't even, I didn't even, like, I, in my mind, I had Don... Done. Don, done, yes. Because I don't, I don't think, I don't think Don wants to be a copywriter. I think that Don I think Don does. wants to do something creative and meaningful with his life. See, Don- I think he wants, I think he wants to fulfill the life that he has not pursued as Dick Whitman like he wants to pick it up, and he just wants to figure out who he is. That's why he's out there. He's fixing cars, and he's doing. Like I think he wants to do something that is more in line with who he was raised to be. So like Catherine's thinking was similar to that. She's like she thought that the last arc of you know the last half season was all about like I, you know some people would read that as like Don's descent right from this really celebrated position to like, I read it as an ascent to uh, to to normalcy right. Yeah, he's just gonna fade away and. That, that's okay for him, right? Yeah. I'm like, he can't just fade away. He actually has family commitments. He has children. He's not going to do this. He's just on walkabout again. Now, I thought like, well, is he really going to walk away from $6 million, which is a lot of money in like 1971 sure. or whatever? And I was thinking to him like, I, it's weird because if you look at his actual behavior over the course of the last three seasons, he seems to like having a lot of money, right? Sure. He owns like an expensive apartment. He cares about how much it sells for. He's desperate to get back in the game when he wasn't in the game, right? 
He's actually the one that engineered the deal with McCann that made all of them so rich. Right. I just can't imagine him walking away given all of those facts of his behavior. And at the same time, it's fully within his range. He doesn't seem to actually care about actually holding money. Right. Right. So in the first season when he gets a huge bonus, which is like $10,000 or something, which is like an unbelievable amount of money at the time. Yeah. I mean, to Don, because Don's not a millionaire yet at this point. And he just gives it away to his, to his like, drugged-out hippie girlfriend and then tells Betts they can't afford a new sofa. Right. Right? Like, you know, it's just the king, like, ah, here's all my money. I don't care. And then he gave he gave Megan a million dollars. It's like, literally just wrote her a check for a million dollars. And she's just like, Don, no joking around. He's like, no jokes, it's yours. She made a good point. She's like, you were a millionaire when I met you, and that's before the McCann deal, right? Right, right. So... Which is an argument that he could also walk away from the... No, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. It's well within his range to walk away from the money. I mean, also... also but I just can't imagine prob- him doing it given his other behavior. He walk away from the money and still get 50 cents on the dollar. Like Joan did, Like yeah. Joan did. Um, to, so to me, also in that last episode... So, so to me, a lot of... Uh, so the, the, the arc of Mad Men is about him, but it's also about Peggy. And it's also yeah. about the baton being passed off from Don to Peggy. Yeah, Catherine, that's a very similar to what she thinks. She thinks that Peggy is the true hero of Mad I, Men. I do, too. Um, and that, you know, you know, she's going to be the creative director or whatever. And, but, and, honestly, and honestly, in my, like, in whatever fan fiction I'm writing yeah. in my head, Don writes Mad Men. I think that's an interesting, great way to come around. Like, right? I, I feel like, I feel like, I mean, and maybe this is my own sort of personal experience, like, that, that Don's always struggling with this idea, like, okay, I need to do this. I need to... You know, be successful. I need, but in the end, he what he really wants to do is create something, and and I think that that frustrated creation, uh, that frustrated creative impulse, leads to some great ads. But I think ultimately, like you see the books he reads, and the the way he consumes movies, like to me, that's the sign of someone who you know who is. He, he does it with this very critical eye and this real like hunger, and I think of someone who wants to create art. And like I think I think even when you look at like you know his 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 love affair with the with the woman who is the artist. So my I, my my read of him is different, which is like I I I guess I I guess I would say that it's just willfully wrong, um, but like I just kind of don't care. Which is like I feel like the human aspect of Don and like whatever the backstory is, and he was poor growing up, and he's got a stolen identity, and all the things that they used to fill the fill the episodes for five seasons or however long they've been doing this are kind of irrelevant insofar that there are lots of people who have had a tough life or frustrated artists or whatever and they're not significant enough to anchor a show on Mad Men's uh, Mad Men's you know scope and that ultimately the differentiating element of Mad Men the difference that makes the difference is that Don is a singular for, creative force in terms of being an advertising copywriter. And that, it, I think that, like, they try to make this clear very early on, I think even as close as the first season, which is that he's the greatest there ever was. And that one of the, one of the, the, the contrast is that he's the greatest that ever was, but he works at this tiny place. Like, in the beginning, he's working at Sterling Cooper, and it's just a, a small firm, sure. right? And that you can see the McCanns trying to get Don. But Don just like I'm just gonna stick around here because he just I, I I don't really get it. he just kind of doesn't care. Um, I see I know you say I, I think he was he was the best I think I think Peggy is 
also every bit his equal. I mean, oh, no, no, no. I don't think it's ever established in the show that Peggy's anywhere near as good as Don. Is Peggy good? Yes, Peggy is good. Peggy is in particular good because they don't have a lot of female copywriters and she can write to women, right? That's that's her differentiating factor at the time that they're taking place. But, but Peggy is like, maybe she's a both a prodigy and his protege, but Don is like this thing he can create. He can create and manipulate the decisions of the most important decision makers in the country and all of the consumers at, at a whim. Peggy is never shown to have that ability. Peggy is shown to have like, I have a good idea, and if we if we work at this, then we can have a pretty good ad. And in some cases, she's like, I had a really creative ad, but it wasn't wasn't rewarded. It wasn't given this award. But Don did this thing, and it was so epic. And I, I, I think that she's good, but Don is something else. But I, but, I, but I also think that Don, funny, it harkens back to his 30 Rock character, has yeah. been in the bubble, right? Like, he's always, like, people have always been predisposed, like, Don is the epitome of the white male. Well, let's... And, 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 and as a result, people are predisposed to listening to him and accepting his ideas and believing in him. And like, that's why he's so commanding in the room. As part of it, he's just—he's like this male ideal. And whereas Peggy struggled against that, and Peggy, that and Peggy, and Peggy's just had great ideas and opportunities dismissed and taken away from her. Because people just—but she's take soldiering her on, right? Yeah. So, but what's Peggy's goal? So Catherine and I had a. I've said Catherine a bunch of times. Catherine's my wife, so yeah. uh, she's the one who got me to Mad Men years and years ago. So we, we've had a lot of discussions about this over the course of the last week. It's basically her favorite show of all time, you know. And you know, I'm super dialed into to, to advertising for personal and professional reasons. Uh, I made no qualms about idolizing Don for yeah. since the show's been on, right? So yeah, like uh, to be clear, if when you went into that hotel room yeah. and the gay porn was on and, and it, was it starred Don, Don Draper. I don't think about it that way. <laughs> so here, and this is actually, this is, I'll tell you the real reason why I love Mad Men and Don so much. When Mad Men first came on, like 2007-ish, 2008, whenever it first came on, yeah, um, I kind of got into it because I work in advertising and people are like, this is about us. This is about us 50 years ago or whatever, right? 30 years ago, however many years ago. And I felt a great resonance with Don in the sense that, like, I was this really great copywriter doing really, really effective marketing campaigns, but also working in a small place, which is where Don started, right? Sure. Um, and like, I'm like, oh, I really like this guy. And my boss at the time said, yes, I could totally see that for you. But you have to understand, if you want to be Don, you have to take everything about Don, both the good things sure. and, the, and, and his outside of work behaviors, right? I'm like, I don't think you do. I, 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 I ascribe to the Bruce Lee philosophy of, of optimization. Take the things that are good, discard everything else, right? And my wife is just like, you're nothing like Don, right? <laughs> like, always maintain, there's no similarity between me and Don at all in any regard. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Don's who I want to be, you know, and, and at least in a professional light. And like, I even had my Peggy. She left me like Peggy did, <laughs> you know. We, all like the, the whole thing, and um, uh, so I mean that I, I feel for him in a, in, a, in a different way. And I think for my own personal reading, it's convenient for me to discard all of his infidelities and daughter destruction and whatever else because I could never reconcile doing something like that myself, right? So that's the you know that's my, and I think that I probably give Don a lot of space because. I'm just willing to completely disregard or def- even defend all of the ratty things he did. 
I did. I wrote a blog post even the the episode where where Sally walks in on Don having an infidelity about how Don was just not culpable at all, and everyone like thought. Especially a lot of female readers were like, "Are you insane?" And I'm like, "Oh, so back me up here." And he's, he's like, "It's like." Don is a monster, and you're a monster for defending him. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys just don't well, understand you, you the and thing. You and I have argued about this before. Yeah. So, I mean, like, so, but for me, the reason that I love the ending so much is it validates my reading of Don. My reading of Don is, Don is the greatest ever, like, in a super, he's like, he's the LeBron James. He's a superhuman example of a, of a paragon of a man doing a particular kind of job. And the crowning way that you can do that is he's oming out at the end of the, this episode and it transitions to him creating what's generally considered to be the most celebrated TV commercial of all time. You know, which is the, the 1970s, uh, I'd like to teach the world to sing, Coke commercial. Right. Um, so, and I'm like, that made me real happy. But you didn't even think that he made the commercial. No, I mean, I think... Now I, you realize from all the discussion that he probably did. No, I don't, I don't, really? I still don't... The Pigtails girl makes it pretty explicit. No, it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it doesn't. I think that could be, that's easily a red herring. I, I like I, I think it is and you know even when I was talking about this on Facebook Randy Bueller yeah. you know was like well it's still Don's idea it's like not necessarily Don's idea if Don and Peggy are, oh Catherine thinks that Don and, and Peggy end up collaborating on the commercial it's quite possible but that it's they end up still Don's even if it, it is right but, so Peggy but, would have never made that herself sure but I, I could also see Don expressing his experiences like you know talking to Peggy well I really just don't see Don walking away from six million dollars in this spot right like that's the thing. He's just, he's like, he has the greatest idea of all time. Is he not going to try to cash in on it? He doesn't want to work with these people, right? Right. So what's the, what's the idea, what's the the sentiment he's given to everybody in the transition? I don't want to work with these people either. There's a lot of money on the table. I don't think he can, I don't think, well, I mean, maybe that's, maybe, maybe he can find the peace to suddenly deal with being in a room with 20 other creative directors. Yeah, but who are, none of them are his equal. That's the thing. Like, he, he is like in the room, he's disgusted by the pettiness of their ideas. See, but, but, but to me also, it was kind of like, in McCann's mind, they are his equals. No, no, no. They, there's no way. The guy who's the head of McCann is like, Don is the, he said, Don is my, the white whale. My, yeah. He, they but, said Don but, is the but, white whale. But, but in terms of an acquisition, I don't, I don't believe that the guy who runs McCann yeah. has the palate to discern the difference between Don and, you know, Bob Braper in the next cubicle. I think that there's no possible way that that's true. He wouldn't have given the guy a bazillion dollars. The reason that they bought his advertising agency was to get Don. You don't lay out dozens of millions of dollars to get one guy if that's not the case. Yeah. Why? Because Roger Sterling is such an important thing No, but I believe because it was... He threw away the other partners. He bought out... I can't remember. Harry Hamlin's character, he just buys him out and dismisses him. Right. He lets Pete go. Right. Who knows what happens to Ted, okay? Right. He dismisses Joan, and who cares about Roger? He bought an entire advertising agency for Don Draper. There's no way that, that he can't discern. I, I, feel, I feel like it was like a toy he wanted to have. I don't feel like it's... Uh, a, a real appreciation. I, I just, to me, the read was like, like Don goes into that Miller. He's like, Don wants to go into that Miller Light yeah. thing, and be, hey, give it to Don and let Don do it. Don doesn't want to work in a brainstorming. He session. doesn't want to work in a brainstorming session. I think you work in a brainstorming session with Peggy. Sure, but I agree. But I mean, 
we don't know with the. But here's here's the other thing to me. The, the, so so you know a lot of you know a lot of people talk about the little ding like the idea going off yeah. for Don. But I mean I also I think that the foreshadowing of Pete Campbell talking to to. Um, Peggy saying that Peggy. she's going to be somebody people yeah. brag about? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. But, but there's two things. Remember, Pete is the father of Peggy's child, sure. which is a largely unresolved plot point in the show, right? Uh, yeah. It, it's addressed oh, forgotten one time. She's just like, I could have owned you. I let you go. And they just, like, are co-workers after yeah, that. Yeah. How many... Seriously, it's like... He knows that she has skeletons in his closet, right? That could rock his life. I mean, do you think he has that idyllic last scene with the chick from Community? If she all of a sudden knows that he has another kid lying around that he had with Peggy? I, I don't think I don't think that's what he's thinking. No, no, no. I, but you have—it's got to be in the back of his mind. The guy is just always angles. I feel—I feel, I feel like they just kind of—I feel like they just wrote themselves a child with her. Yes. This isn't like I slept with my coworker once. I slept with my coworker once, and nine months later. Yes. I mean. So, but anyway, looks like she realized she was pregnant. So, but there's that, right? And then separately, oh, actually, that's really interesting, right? So, because Don attempts to re- reenact that scene with White Canary, right? Like, I can help you. You can get past this, right? He goes into like the Don Draper voice mode, and I'm like, this is so echoing the scene where Peggy is emotionally destroyed. She's just had this kid. She doesn't know how to care for it. She, I guess she was in denial. People just thought she had gotten fat, right? right Whatever right. it was. But she's, like, completely emotionally destroyed in this room. And Don Draper walks and he says, you will be shocked by what you can forget. You know, like, and I was just like, oh, my God. Is he right? Is this the way that you do this? And he's just like, get past it and get back to work, Peggy. But, and then, but that's how he rescues her, right? Like. Who knows how Peggy will get out of that situation emotionally if Don doesn't show up for her and show her that somebody somewhere knew what she was going through and actually cared at least a little bit about her. Although, it really made me think when he tried to run it again with White Canary, like, maybe Don was wrong. Maybe, like, what I consider to be the second most iconic scene in the history of Mad Men, maybe that was a failure, not a success on his part. Well, I mean, I think... I think obviously Don has shown that you can't forget about it and get past it, right? Like those but things that, have just continually but that just moment, risen just up like, from the deep and just pulled him on. At the time I was watching it live, I'm like, A, is he right? B, is this right? You know, like C, is this what you do? D, is he the voice of wisdom? I mean, like, like I'm like going through this. I'm like, there's just no way I would say that to somebody. Right. There, I don't. I have a hard time imagining that I would accept this kind of of advice from somebody given get, being in that spot. Have you ever, have you ever seen uh, the movie House of Games? Yeah. Forgive yourself. No, no, no I get that. This isn't about serenity. This right. is like oh, that's not about serenity either. This is about annihilation, right? Yeah. He's just like erase this moment from your life. Right. Right. And then, of course, there's the Utz Lady Finger Bang scene, which I cannot believe made it on television. I will end you. <laughs> She's like, what? And I'm like, Catherine, what do you think about that scene? Because like, we actually talked about that scene in context of Game of Thrones this week. She's like, oh, no, she liked it. It was fine. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I know that there was this, like, love, hate, I will end you, destroy each other's family lives sort of context going on. But she liked it. I what do you think? I, I there's a, a range you could go. You could go with like full blown sexual assault too. I, it was fine. I, I uh, 
I, I tend to veer on the sexual assault side. There. I, I have a hard time thinking yeah. about that scene. Yeah. Because I think he deliberately does it as, like, a weapon, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, like, the context I have is, like, maybe he does it as a weapon, which is a negative, right? But if this is a battlefield that they've agreed on, right, this is a... It's acceptable in their private I would, law that I would, they made I would, need, I would need to go back and rewatch it. Oh, and, it's tough. Yeah, I'm, no, no, I'm saying, like, I need to do... I, so I've watched Med Men once. Yeah. Every, but I, I, at some point, need to go and do a rewatch. In my or, opinion, this is, like, way more ambiguous than the last scene. And, like, it's a tough thing. I'm like... Because either he's, like, a horrendous, almost irredeemable villain then, or it's fine. Not only is it fine, but, like, this is their agreed-upon... You know, battlefield. You know, in which case it's like, wouldn't say it's noble, but it's just, like, it's just like this is just how we deal with these things amongst ourselves. Right. And I think it, I, I think it's completely. You know, there's this adage which is like there are no wrong behaviors, there's only wrong contexts. Right. Sure. So if you shift the context, then something which seems reprehensible is is just fine, or something that seems noble can be destructive. You know. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I love the last episode because I feel like I was right. Uh, I feel like, but Pete, I also love the first last episode because I feel like I was right. I feel like Pete shouldn't and get I, a happy ending. What's that? You feel like he shouldn't? No. Do you think Pete should get a happy? He's like the original villain of the show. Yeah, I know, but I feel like I feel like Pete's been made to suffer over the course of the show. Really? Because he he was made to suffer by getting richer. He starts off rich, gets richer. Oh, sorry. Starts off rich, impregnates Peggy, takes no responsibility for it, gets richer, gets married to this girl who's completely devoted and in love with him, and, like, just a super sweetheart. Never any indication of anything negative coming from her. Even after Pete destroys her family life, she's constantly kind to him and never speaks ill of him in front of their children or even amongst girlfriends. That's the woman he chooses to run around with prostitutes on and whatever else he's doing. And then he just gets richer and richer... Gets a super great job that everyone else who's rich is jealous of and has a happy ending. You think he's made but to suffer? I, I'm, I'm just saying, I don't, but I, I, I think Pete suffered greatly. Like, I think emotionally, Pete always, Pete always suffered. I mean, I think he deserved it. You think he suffered? I do. I don't, I don't think Pete, Pete's never happy with that money. He's never happy You think he suffered like Peggy success. suffered? No, I mean, everyone suffers differently. But or think, Joan? Joan had the hardest who's, road. Who's Holloway? So at the end, when she has the firm, yeah. it's Harrison Holloway. Oh, Who's Holloway? Maybe a made-up person. I guess it is. But Wait, I thought no, maybe... no, no, Holloway is her maiden name. I think she's Joan Holloway at the beginning of the show. Oh, and then she becomes Joan Harris? Because it's yeah. Harrison Holloway. I'd have to look it up. I think Holloway is just her. That's right. I think it was. Yeah. That's funny. I was actually, I was pissed at that. I was like... I kind of wanted Peggy to take it. Same. I, I like, mean, you know me. I, but yes, yeah, entrepreneurially, like I'm like Peggy. This is of awesome. course you should do your own thing, right? And Catherine's like, no, Peggy wants to be a copywriter. She wants to be the first girl copywriter. Right. Let her do the things she wants to do. Right. Exactly. Um, she's like, she's with the man she loves, doing the things that she wants. This is her happy ending. Why do you have to make Joan's happy ending her happy ending? And Joan even getting whatever. Wait, what did she get? Fifty cents of the dollars? Because she walked away with five hundred thousand dollars. Something like that. Yeah. That's a ton of money for yeah. a woman. Oh. <laughs> Right? So, like, imagine how much money Joan gets versus how much money Don gets. Well, she had a small, she had a much smaller stake in that. Well, in, also, in Don basically invented the entire company by allying with their greatest enemy. And Joan slept with a guy one night and they gave her a partnership. Which was the harder road? I think Joan. You think Joan? Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> I'm not sure. But the best is, like, 
that's why I, think, I keep coming back. I think Don is this eminently moral man, right? In that episode, he comes back to Joan and he says, Joan, don't do it. It's not worth it, right? Right. But it's already too late at that point. But jo- but Don just cared about Joan. He didn't want her to do this thing. Like, when there's the gay guy, right? Like, Don protects him. When there's the drunk guy who's like, has bouts of alcoholism and who's like, embarrassing himself at work, Don will not let anyone talk about these people badly sure. behind their back. The thing is, I think of him as this like incredibly moral character. That's why it's so tough for me that he, he cannot a, treat the women in his own life. With I think he just has a lot. I think he has a lot of empathy for people who have secrets. I don't think he's a moral guy. I don't think he's stopping Jones from prostituting himself is a moral. But I, but I don't think it's driven. I think it's all context again. Yeah. I just think it's all driven by his own guilt and his own secrets and his own like reaction at a point where he's like I can either you know I killed this guy you know on accident here and I can either but it was lucky. I can either owe up to it or I could take his take his identity right like so it worked out for him it did well I guess I guess it worked out for him like Don's clearly talented and was going to succeed at whatever he did like I think I think he would have had a you know obviously had a very different life but I wouldn't have been that different if he was if he was Dick Whitman in the same context. He probably would have done the exact same stuff, right? Maybe, but 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 without but without being haunted. Yeah. But the thing is, I never understood why he was so haunted because he ended up being best friends with Don Draper, the real Don Draper's wife. I mean, people's emotional infrastructure is a lot more complicated than. I just don't just, know what consequences he... I mean, yeah, he killed a guy by accident. It was war, you know? I mean, I don't want to minimize anybody's suffering, but... I mean, he talks about the end, right? He's like, you know, I, I, I took another man's name. I made, made nothing, nothing of it. Yeah. But I think... But, that and, he, the, and that, by the way, that to me is very telling. Like, I feel like Don looks at everything he's done and however successful he's been, and he's like, I have not made anything substantial. I have not... You know, his ultimately his Midwestern kind of like ethos of like put something into the world that is meaningful is you know you know like build something create something I think that there's something there that wants him to do more than create an ad but then by the end does he make a good enough ad that he's made something meaningful He's selling sugar water. I can't imagine. Oh, I mean, like, there's nothing noble about the profession <laughs> in the abstract, right? It's still something that can be done well. Sure. No, no. I. But that's the thing is he's he's been able to do whatever he wants to do well. Yeah. I mean, like, I guess he's like. I, so, what do you think about this? Is this is actually something that I, I discuss a lot with my wife as well, which is like, there's the episode where he fires the guy who who uh, is like tries to be Don like kind of an asshole in a meeting. And then Don fires him, and he's like, you're nothing, you're just handsome. And I'm like, is that the lesson of the show? Is he really just handsome? I can't I imagine. It's, it's a, I, well, I, I mean, I think that there's certainly something there. I think, again, it's, you know, if, if, if you go to Moneyball, right? Like yep. like the idea of Billy Bean talks about coming out, like, coming out of the minor leagues. And he's a five-skill like, star. He's like, you look like, like, he looks yeah. like a ball player. And, like, and like Lenny Dykstra was someone who struggled more because he was, it didn't look like a ball player. And... There was some real conflict for Billy Bean. Obviously, emotional conflict for Billy Bean in the sense of, like, I want to be validated for who I am, not what I look like. You know, and like... When you say who I am, you mean what I can do? I think I think I mean something more ephemeral than that. I, I, I think, like, 
you know, your 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 own, you know, the 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 the, the great bright band of white light that Kurt Vonnegut talks about in Breakfast of Champions that sort of makes us who we are. Man, you know what I think about every time I think of Breakfast of Champions? The drawing of an asshole? No, wide open beaver, but the drawing <laughs> of the asterisk asshole. Wide open beavers, come on. Then he draws a beaver and yeah. he's like, this is a beaver. This is a wide open beaver. <laughs> I mean, the man won like many awards. Yeah. Did he win the Pulitzer? I believe he did, yes. But According to Brian, he won the Pulitzer. Yeah, sure, we can't look it up. Wide open beaver. <laughs> it's exactly what you think. I always think. I actually always think of the asshole. Yeah. Which is just an asterisk. Yeah, yeah. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sirens of Titan was long my favorite book. Yeah. Um. So. My my actual my actual favorite Vonnegut book is Dead Eye Deck. I don't think I've ever read that. One. It's really. It's, I just. I really love it. I really love Sirens of Titan. Yes, it's fine. I thought it was a sci-fi book. <laughs> Ostensibly, it was. Ish. Yeah. Um, so you don't want to talk about Game of Thrones at all? I don't. It's 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 too hot a topic for me to get into and get my head around right now. All right. Um, we should talk about a really cool magic deck now. Just punish everyone who didn't listen. All right. Is there spoilers? Um, <laughs> I don't know. Magic? I'm, I'm on the wrong thing. Yeah. All right. I actually talk about something I'm disappointed in. Okay. Multiversity. Do you know what multiversity is? No. So, it was a DC event that recently finished. Okay. Grant Morrison wrote it. Okay. And it's like... And this is different than Convergence? It's, yeah, it's the opposite of Convergence, basically. Multiversity is just like, it outlines all of the 52 worlds, right? This is like the Red Sun world. This is like Earth 3. This is Earth 2. This is Earth 1. This is Earth Prime. Like, all this stuff. I'm so, like, undoing all the crisis on Infinite Earth? No, no, no. There's been 52 worlds for a while. Okay. okay. Um, oh, is that what the new 52 was? Yeah. Oh, it's supposed to be 52 worlds? There's 52 worlds. It's 52 titles, but it's also 52 worlds. Does each title take place on a different world? No, 50. 50 or 51 of the titles take place on Earth Zero. I think it's Earth Zero, yeah? And then, so, they have, like, the, the three or four main Earths are Earth Zero, which is where 50 of the... Which is, like, basically what used to be Prime Earth, but then... Earth Prime. Earth Prime, yeah, but Flashpoint changed things. So, um, do you know what Flashpoint is? No. Barry Allen saves his mother instead of her getting killed by... Oh, okay. ...by Professor Zoom in the past. Oh. So, history's changed slightly... Um, like Thomas Wayne as Batman instead of Bruce Wayne. So Bruce Wayne is killed, and the Wayne parents live. And because the Wayne parents live, by the way, that's the whole. That seems to be the whole setup to Flash, because yeah. the beginning of Flash is Professor Zoom killing yeah. his mother, and everything's been. I haven't watched the last episode, still, but everything's moving towards so him going back in time to if, stop it. So when Flash uh, saves his mother. Just this one, it just changes the world a little bit. Sure. So Bruce Wayne dies instead of the parents dying. And, but they have really interesting outcomes, right? So what happens to Bruce when his parents die? He becomes, like, driven and some would say insane. Yeah. Right? His father becomes driven and his mother becomes insane. So his mother becomes the joker of their world, right? Oh, interesting. That's an awesome take, yeah. right? But then Thomas becomes Batman. So he's just this incredibly hard Batman. So Barry Allen wakes up and he's just, like, not the Flash anymore. And he doesn't know what to do. And he's like, the world is a little bit different. He goes to Gotham City. He's like, I'll take out Bruce. He goes there, breaks into the Batcave. He's like, Bruce, Bruce. And he's like, don't talk about Bruce to me. 
And, like, you, the readers don't know at this point that Batman is Thomas Wayne. But anyway, so it's Flashpoint happens, and then they undo it, basically. Barry has to let his mother die in order to write to write uh, the timeline. But then it's the integration of the Vertigo, DC, and Wildstorm universes into a single universe. So, Earth, I guess it's Earth Zero. Incorporates essentially what you would think of as the mainstream DC universe and um, and uh, the Wildstorm universe with essentially one caveat, which is that all the heroes are five years younger. So there's basically two time arcs. One of them is five years ago, and, one of them, and then, then there's the present day. But everyone's five years younger. So, like, Batman will be, like, in his early 30s instead of, like, his mid to late sure. 30s, you know. The guys who are drawn that have, like, a little white on the side don't have a little white sure. on the side. Um, I could use some of that. Yeah, uh, and then, but, like, it's basically the same. It's, right. like, everything actually happened that happened in all the comics you read. Everyone's a little bit younger. Actually, now that I think back on it, yeah. just before that, Earth, what we were, the, the main DC Universe, Earth, Earth 1. It's Earth 1. But Earth 1 now is all the graphic novels that are done for uh, mainstream consumption are on Earth 1. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so there's like Superman Earth 1, Batman Earth 1, Teen Titans Earth 1. So those are like, I don't want to say sanitized, but like more simplified stories. Um, but they're very good, right? And then Earth 2 was the Golden Age characters. Yep. So that and then Earth Prime was actually our Earth, our Earth yeah. that read them as comic books. Yep. So Earth Earth 2 is the same. It's the Golden Age characters, but they're young. They're not old, okay. right? So, but it's a, it's like Jay Garrick is the is the Flash. Right. Alan Scott is Green Lantern on this world, right, etc. Right, right. So Wildcat. But, yeah. So because the because the because it's is that Bud Grant. Ted Grant. Ted Grant. Who's on Arrow. Yeah. Right? So, because so because the, the Earth are constructed this way as 52 simultaneously existing different worlds, basically what happens is Earth 2 is, like, the worst place to live. And the reason that you learn later is because dark side... So, the, the, the new gods and stuff, they don't take place on Earth. They're, like, they could see any Earth from where they are. So, I think, like, High Father made a deal with Dark Side that High Father won't oppose Dark Side if he just concentrates on beating up one Earth. And that's Earth 2. <laughs> so then, like, Earth 3 is the, the prime syndicate world. So anyway, multiversity is, like, it's supposed to be, like, this traveling between a bunch of these different ones. He does one that's the Charlton character. So he does, like, basically a 2015 retelling of Watchmen. Oh, neat. With Frank Quitely as the artist. Um, uh, I wish I could loan it to you, but I have it only digitally. Okay. Um, so I was, like, really excited to read that. He does one called Thunderworld, which is just, like, uh, this Cameron Stewart illustrated, like, super smiling faces. Is it like Shazam characters? Shazam, yeah, but it's called Captain Marvel. In the in the mainstream comics, he's called Shazam. For simplicity's sake, everyone's... Everyone who doesn't read comics calls Shazam anyway. Yeah. But he's called Captain Marvel in this world. Nice. So he does, like, seven or so of those. Like, one of them's on the Nazi... Like, a Nazi Earth. When that's, he just, that's, that's the Fawcett character, right? It's like Uncle Sam and the yep. Human Bomb. That's right. That was Earth-X. But... It might be Earth X. I don't know which. Yeah, name. yeah, yeah. So he does. Yeah. So there's a bunch of those. That's my favorite Earth. I was just expecting more, right? Yeah. So like, oh, there's this great one which is Golden Age characters, and they're like really Golden Age seeming. Uh, that one I liked a lot, uh, and it was illustrated by Chris Sprouse. Ooh, I love Sprouse. So yeah, see, I guess I'm saying these things like all the high notes. Yeah, everything you're saying about it, I want to awesome. read. But then like, it just ends up being this like super self-indulgent Morrison story, like. The same with Seven Soldiers of Victory. There are a lot of good things going on about it, but the end is just like, there's Morrison's ideas about magic invading comic books being reality, being, you know. And so 
all the different Earths can communicate with each other by reading comic books. So it's like, so if I read the comic that has Thunderworld in it, and I'm on, and I'm on Earth Prime, that could be Captain Marvel communicating with me so, so about an attempting, you know, cross-dimensional savanna attack. So it's just like him doing Animal Man all over again. I didn't think about it that way, but he has a much better set of illustrators than Chaz Truog. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. Like, but I think in it Animal was, Man, doesn't he put himself yes. into Animal Man? And people say like. It's impossible. Although I love Adam. I do love his run on It's Adam. impossible that such a significant run of comics could have been assigned to Chaz Truog, <laughs> who's just the least talented illustrator in the history of comic books. That is not true, but it's close. It's not good. It's, it's, so, in the, so it's open for discussion. Given such a significant comic book to illustrate? Well, I don't think anyone knew. I mean, it was like, it was still kind of like the book yeah, just came out without any fanfare. I get you. Yeah. Anyway, so I just expected more. That's the thing. Especially since they've got, like, all of these, like, kind of cross-time, cross-universe capers going on right now. They've got they've got New 52, World's End, and uh, and uh, uh, Earth, Earth 2 Future's End, which are, like, you know, this, this is, takes place five years in the future. This is, this is there's all Convergence. Really Convergence is kind of cool. It's just, like... All the Earths that were destroyed in the different crises are still having stories. Like, these stories are taking place in the Flashpoint world. These stories are taking place in the Infinite Crisis world. And I was like, which is kind of cool. Yeah, like, my, friend, my friends Dave and Steve just yeah. did, um, like, the uh, Guy Gardner Green Lantern two-issue run. Where they got to bring back Guy Gardner. Oh, oh and for Convergence? For Convergence, yeah. Dave who? Dave Gallagher and uh, Steve Ellis. Oh, Steve Ellis. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. Anything you want to say about Steve Ellis? He's really talented. All right, we'll save that one for a future episode, I guess. Okay. Uh, um, so anyway, he draws a mean minotaur. He, he draws a mean minotaur. You say? Well, I guess we're gonna save that for another <laughs> one. Um, you know, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter and see if Brian will crack. I guess. <laughs> okay, here's a hashtag: Will Brian crack? Uh, the answer is probably yes. Oh yeah. I'm, right. I'm an easy mark. So, Will Brian crack? Anyway, long story short, I just expected more. And, it just, and it's, like, some of the individual stories are really good. The Secret Society of Superheroes, which is like it's like Golden Age, Golden Age one, I loved a lot. Uh, that Mr. Mind and those guys. No, that it's like he just like reimagines like a bunch of guys like Vandal Savage, and he's like there's like Doctor Fate, but they call him Doc Fate, and like right. there's Admin Sir, the Green Lancer, and it's just all drawn like with World War II pants, <laughs> you know, like and John Purse, yeah. Those and they've got like, you know, biplanes and stuff, and you know, it's interesting what Vandal Savage considers a victory at the end. I'm like, oh, he did win. This is really interesting. Um, so, Van- Vandal Savage is the bad guy. For, and for Le- Legends of the Five Superheroes, Legends of the Future. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. It's a bad name. I'm like, I'm so Clark is just like. This is already my favorite television show. He's like, Arrow's his favorite television show. He's like, I don't think I'm even going to watch Arrow next year. Not when there's this to watch. So you know he can watch a lot of TV? He can't. He's not really allowed. Oh. So he, he has limited amount of, But he's just like, this is already my favorite show. I will not even watch Arrow next year. That's... That's Clark's declaration upon seeing Legends of Legends of Legends of Tomorrow. Legends of Tomorrow. Um, the, the 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 ad for it. Uh, so Flash is good. Legends of Tomorrow. That Supergirl's coming out. Supergirl takes place in the same universe. Oh, it does. It's, a, yeah, it's, well, it's Greg Berlanti, same guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. CBS owns CW. The CW. Okay. So this is just their. You know, I mean, I guess they decided they saw the Scarlett Johansson 
uh, Black Widow trailer from SNL. They're like, we could just make a TV show about this, and they did. They did. I was very happy. I was very happy with my tweet for that link. Oh, like, I didn't see it. it was, I was just like, uh, this is Black Widow's heel turn. <laughs> Stupid heels. <laughs> That's well done. Yeah. Well, well, Carrie Dan, link that one. <laughs> That's a winner. Um, and then the Teen Titans is supposed to come out on TNT, right? I guess so, yeah. Which is like, I don't understand how they can have these characters who have, like, extensive backends with important characters. Like, if you have Teen Titans and you have Robin slash Nightwing... Doesn't that presuppose that you have Batman? Or, like, even the Supergirl commercial indicates that Superman exists in their world. Right. I mean, wouldn't then characters like Green Arrow and Flash and Adam in the context of the shows that we've seen so far been a lot less imposing or surprising than they have been depicted? If you just... Or wouldn't somebody have mentioned that there's a flying man in Metropolis at some point? Right. So I kind of don't like that. Maybe characters with substantial backstories. Like, maybe they should have just done, I don't know, Blue Beetle. I, I feel the like Blue question. Beetle. Feel, oh, I love the question. Question's one of my favorite characters. So, um, so, Ollie gives up the Arrow mantle, right? So, it's like, I will never be the Arrow again. So, we're, so me and Bella are like, what's he going to be? Bella's like, just Batman. He's just going to be <laughs> Batman, finally. <laughs> Because he's written as Batman. He's literally written as Batman on the show. I, I think he's actually written as Daredevil. You think he's written as Daredevil? Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like... I feel, wow. But Daredevil's not a billionaire. No, I agree. I agree. But I, I, feel, I feel like both... Uh, I guess Arrow and Daredevil both just kind of, like, overlap all over each other in terms of... Like, Frank Miller's Daredevil is built on the foundation of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams' Green Lantern, Green Arrow stories... And then, like, Green Arrow Longbow Hunters is, like, biting off of all of Frank Miller's Dark Knight work. Kevin Smith entered comics by writing Daredevil and then went and wrote Green Arrow. Yeah, yeah, like, I I feel like the two characters just kind of, like, hand stuff off back and forth. Like, they both have, like, ninja assassins who are killed, who are resurrected in white costumes. They're both philanderers. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. I don't think of Daredevil as a serious character in the same same really? vein. Yeah. I think he's an elevated character. Like, he's a character who's not very good. Consider, you stick Frank Miller on him, and, and, and Frank Miller did him as a Kelly on him, consider, and he's elevated to be I consider Daredevil to be one of the three pillars of modern comics. Really? Yeah. Only because of elevation. Not He's not yeah, a only, fundamentally good character. No, but, but but you know, it's a, it's a Claremont's X-Men. Yeah. Alan Moore's... Watchmen. Watchmen and... Like, Swamp Thing. And, Watchmen and Swamp Thing, um, and Frank Miller's Daredevil. I think our which con- which leads into Batman. But like those three, <clears throat> those three creative arcs are like the foundation of everything in comics today. It's funny what your context of what a modern comic is. is well, I'm saying over the last 35 years. I agree, and I would have a completely different mix of comics that I would pick. I would pick Alan Moore's Miracle Man. Sure. I mean, I think the Alan Moore stuff's all in the no, same. No, Alan Moore, Miracle Man Man predates Swamp Thing. The concept of deconstructing classic superheroes, because Miracle Man is the deconstruction of of Captain Marvel, right? Because basically Captain Marvel's in copyright violation. They decide to just keep publishing as Marvel Man, right? They can't publish it as Marvel Man in the U.S. because Marvel owns the word, so they make Miracle Man. 
And then Alan Moore, they just let him do whatever he wants. Well, Mir- Mir- Miracle Man was actually a British comic before Alan Moore ever touched it. No. Yes. There was Marvel Man was the British comic. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Marvel, I'm sorry. Marvel. Right. Only Miracle sorry, Man Marvel in America. Man. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, whatever. But Miracle Man doesn't even exist in, in England right. because they lost the license. Eclipse Comics published it in the U.S. completely irrespective yeah, yeah, yeah. of the Warrior yeah, Comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so like they're just like, oh, it's Alan Moore. Let's let him do whatever the hell he wants, right? The concept of like creative ownership and deconstructing classic superheroes comes out of this comic book. And like what what he himself did on Supreme later, for example, I, I think, I think the Swamp, foundation is. Laid I think down Swamp there. Thing actually is more influential than Miracle. I mean, Man. Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing killed the old guard, right? Killed so, the old guard and created like you don't have Vertigo comics without Swamp Thing. Agree. So I mean, I would actually say like in terms of movements, you don't have like all the American comics being written by British writers for 20 years without Swamp Thing, right? Swamp Thing was like, oh, here's this British guy who's going to write American comics, and like, and that. Makes way for Mark Millar, Grant Morrison, James Robinson, all these guys who come in and dominate the comics in the 90s. You know, Neil Gaiman, you know, all these guys. And then now American writers are coming back, and there's good American writers again. But, I mean, I I would actually say Miracle Man would be one of my pillars. Jim Lee and uh, Chris Claremont's X-Men. So I would pick Lee Lee and Claremont, not Byrne and Claremont. But, but, But Byrne and Claremont are what... So, like, there's, there's these just waves of comics that made comics relevant. And, like, X-Men was a, a dead title. It was dead. Yeah. And, and Claremont comes on to X-Men and picks it up with, you know, the the, 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 the annual and with X-Men 94 and Cockrum. And eventually, when Byrne takes over, like, that, that just... Changed the comic book industry. It was like it was like introducing Magic the Gathering into sports trading card stores. Like, oh, we're relevant again. We can make money. I mean, I almost like, like X Men drove pe- like let comic book stores make money. I almost feel like like I feel like the direct market is predicated on the money. success of Burn X Men, Burn Era X Men. But I would say like it's 2005 now. Don't forget about being in 1983. Okay, comics are a dead medium. What resurrects comics? In, in the American marketplace. Batman Hush, right? Before that, you have all these comics that are, like, critically acclaimed, super interesting. You know, uh, the Casada Palmiati Marvel Knights proliferation, but nobody's buying anything, right? And then you have comics reemerging as an actual force of, force of commerce. That comes from Batman Hush, and that comes directly from Jim Lee, who was made on... On, on X-Men. It comes, from, it comes from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movie. You think? Sam, Sam I mean, Raimi, the, obviously, the, but that's not a comic, right? No, the, no. The but Sam Raimi's saying, Spider-Man movie obviously recreated the entire market. Sam, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movie, just when people were like, oh, wait a minute, there's an endgame here to comics. <laughs> and, and man, has there been an endgame. Yes. So like, no one would have predicted this 15 years ago. So, honestly, yeah. so I did a comic for Crusade Entertainment. In, so this is like in the 90s called Who's the Crooked Man it was an anthology with three other creative teams and they were all stories told in this one universe built around a church called the First Church of the Crooked Man which was a Scientology style religion but it was based off of Golden Age comics instead of science fiction novels yeah. and it was basically Baldassar Broom and Cy Finch were these two like Kirby Lee type creators who created this whole universe of characters and then uh uh, Cy Finch was called before, like, Seduction of the Innocent happened, and, like, he basically said, all right, screw it, I'm getting out of comics. 
these these comics are not comics they're a prophecy and he started a religion based around them and now fast forward to modern times the religion is bigger than Scientology is right now it's it's a mainstream like thing that's happened there's all sorts of conspiracy theories around the comics the comics are super hard to find and at, but in that comic which again was written in like it might be 97 or 98 like the whole thing is predicated on the idea that comics have made this huge leap into movies and people who are creating comics have become celebrities entertainment tonight in my comic is actually covering what comic is going to be turned into a movie and will will this actor and this director bring garrison which is one of the pivotal boardwalk comic titles that forms the foundation of this religion Will they bring this? There's only the one screens? issue of this. Yeah, twelve pages. <laughs> Man, it's really good. <laughs> now I'm mad. I never read it. Do you have a copy? I do. I do. I would love to read it. But uh, yeah, so that's so. So I, I actually, I always felt like I did always feel like I always felt like comic movies. I always felt like this was a matter of technology catching up to. The special effects. Yeah, it's, it's funny needed to tell these stories. People are like, "Well, why can't Sony and Marvel or Fox and Marvel just be friends?" The answer is because any one of these movies is worth a billion dollars. Like, and they're like, "Well, it's stupid that they killed Wolverine in the comics." I love Wolverine comics. Like, really? Because Guardians of the Galaxy, which was made <laughs> on like. 1970s cast-off characters like Rocket Raccoon made more money than the last 10 years of Marvel Comics put together. Yep. They're like, like they're, they're canceling the Fantastic Four. You know why? Because they don't want to give even a drop of promotion to the enemy. The enemy being themselves. <laughs> All right, you got to go to a draft. Luckily, it's right down the street. Yes. Okay. All right. Uh, by, the way, by the way, just speaking of comics, Emergence Genesis... Uh, the deck building game at the printer right now. So, very excited. I don't remember what I boosted for, but will I expect it to come to me? Uh, well, we, we said everything would ship in, uh, over the summer. Okay. So, But we're at the printer. I mean, being at the printer and us getting the games is a long, slow boat ride from China away still. Oh, China. Whenever I hear the word China, I think of how they say it in Street Fighter 2. China. <laughs> That was probably not relevant to anyone who's not played Street Fighter 2. All right, so um, awesome, good, good cast. Uh, I hope you win your draft. Thanks. I hope you open a Tarmogoyf. I do too. I might. Not, I'm worried because now I, I might. I might just draft and drop. Why? So I want, well, I want to draft, but because I got to meet my wife at some point. So. All right. But anyway, I'll let you meet your wife. Okay. Bye, everyone.